The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2006. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Let me give you a few basic facts. May 3rd, 1960, a little show opened in a little theater in Greenwich Village. It closed after 17,162 performances on January 13th, 2002, making The Fantastics the longest-running musical in the universe, not just in this country, but in the entire universe, the longest-running show in America, the longest-running musical all around the world. I don't know about Saturn. I've heard rumors that there's, <laughs> <laughs> that there's a show running on Saturn. <laughs> yes. That is the voice of Tom Jones, our guest today, the fellow who wrote the lyrics in the book for the Fantastics. Hi, Tom. I am delighted to be here. It all began at the University of Texas with you and Harvey Schmidt. You were both students. Yes. You were studying theater direction. He was studying to be a commercial artist. Yes, which he became a very, very, very successful one. And then you collaborated on some college shows and over the yes. next decade did some work here in New York. And then there was the Fantastics. Right. We I'm, did, I'm oversimplifying, obviously. Right. We did, uh, you know, we after college, we neither of us had any intention whatsoever of writing musicals, as you indicated. But it was fun, and it, we continued. We both went in the Army into the Korean ad- misadventure or adventure <laughs> or whatever, and we wrote songs by mail. And then we came to New York, and we, with a couple of other guys, uh, rented, you know how you do, on the west side, the upper west side, an apartment. And Harvey, his career just took off like gangbusters. As a commercial artist. As a commercial artist, yeah. And uh, he was featured in, you know, it, it, it was wonderful assignments and beautiful, beautiful work. And I was really teaching a little drama group and starving. But uh, we started writing comedy material for Julius Monk's reviews. The you know the um, maybe you don't know the upstairs, downstairs, and downstairs, upstairs, and uh, Ben Bagley's shoestring reviews and things like that. And after doing that for four years, I think we finally got together and put together the Fantastics. But it wasn't originally the Fantastics. No, we we were trying. We had this idea. We were looking for a property to develop, and we, I knew about this piece, um, this Rostan play called originally Le Romanesque, a spoof of young love uh, and a spoof of Romeo and Juliet, actually in a way. And uh, Harvey and I tried for three years, I think, to t- make a big Broadway musical out of this material, and it just wouldn't watch. First of all, we didn't know how to do a big Broadway musical. We had no training, and we hadn't had money to see that many big Broadway musicals, actually. So finally, it all, you know, it was sort of realistic, and um, it was envisioned with a big chorus, and one one ranch was two ranches, adjoining ranches, and one Anglo and one Spanish in the Southwest. It was a genuine mess. Well, you were were trying to pattern it, I read in in your book, um, kind of in the style of Oklahoma, the Rodgers and Hammerstein show. You even had a name for it. Joy Comes to Dead Horse? Yes. You think that's a winner? (laughs) Joy Comes to Dead Horse. Can you imagine? And anyway, um, yeah, that was the the pattern, and a wonderful pattern it was, and in fact still is, really, the Rodgers and Hammerstein. But we didn't know how to do it. And uh, later we sort of learned, when we did 110 of the Shade, by that point we'd sort of learned to work in that form. Eventually... That's just we threw out everything, you know. Our friend Word Baker, who's a director we'd 
come to New York with from college, had a chance to do three one-acts, original one-acts at a summer theater that Millard, Mildred Dunnick had up at Barnard, where she was doing for one summer. He said if... And she was agreed that he could do one of them as a musical. And uh, he came to us and said, if you can take that piece you've been working on and get it into a long one-act musical form in three weeks, I can give you a production in three weeks after that. So we threw out everything except the song Try to Remember, and we just redid the whole thing in three weeks, just forgetting Rodgers and Hammerstein, forgetting Broadway, and thought, nobody's ever going to do this anyway. We'll just do the kind of theater we like, which at that point was a kind of it's not so revolutionary now, but it was revolutionary, and we were young revolutionaries, if you can believe it. It was presentational, where you admit the existence of the theater, where you address the audience directly. It was written in verse. We used a wooden platform. We used commedia prototypes, and on and on and on. We used the invisible prop man from the Oriental Theater to sprinkle paper to signify snow or rain or whatever. And that was very personal, and that was the Fantastics, and it was unique, and it even to this day is, to some extent, not quite like anything else. Well, you basically stripped it down to the bare essentials, to the basic concept of the show, rather than trying to embellish, as you originally were trying. Well, we did, but we also had a... We, we were able to find a concept, a, a presentation in this form that freed us, you know, uh, the 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 decision to use a comedia troupe and a platform and uh to use to write it in verse i was doing a lot of studying of um shakespeare techniques that summer and all my uh, you know college life that was my big hero was uh, dreaming to be never to be you know rogers hammerstein but the dream was to be <laughs> william shakespeare <laughs> why not shoot for the top right uh and I, so I studied several books, and I b- took Shakespeare plays, and I broke them apart and tried to analyze how he used verse and in what ways he, what techniques, and then I consciously tried to incorporate those things into the fantastics. Well, in your book, Making Musicals, that you wrote several years ago, you broke down to three basic elements, premise, plot, and concept. Yes. So how, how do you differentiate those, and what are the premise, the plot, and the concept of the Fantastics? Quick, hand me the book so I can... <laughs> <Here you laughs> page, page, 100 right, the premise, page 101. <laughs> uh, the, the premise, I think I talk about that. The, the, the premise is often the hardest thing. To know what it's really about is often the hardest thing that there is, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, I use a story, which is true, that Sheldon Harnick told me. When they were working on Fiddler on the Roof, they got the rights... Uh, um, the writers did and they took it to, um, to Harold Prince and he said he, oh, it wasn't right for him to direct but he might be interested in producing it if they could get Jerome Robbins to direct it so they had written the basic story and s- script and most of the songs and they went to Jerome Robbins and they played for him and he said yes interesting uh, uh, but what is it about and they said, well, it's about a, a milkman named Tevio has five daughters. He said, no, 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 that's the plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know what the plot is, but I want to know what it's about. And they couldn't immediately answer or agree amongst themselves, so they worked on it for several weeks, and there's some, I think, disagreement about who really came up with the. But the answer that they brought to him finally, they said, it's about 
tradition. It's about the a tradition that's about to be swept away forever. And Jerome Robbins said, "All right, I can understand that. That gives me the the con the overall concept." He said, "Now, if you'll write an opening number about tradition, they had an opening number called Fiddler on the Roof, which is still that music. Fiddler on the roof. You can kind of hear some of us from Hebrew school still know those lyrics that we were taught them. Oh, really? From Fiddler on the Roof? Yes, the the lyrics that you never heard in the show. Yeah, how interesting. I've never heard those. But after the program, I'll share them with you. Anyway, so we in the Fantastics, the plot is taken from the Rostand. It's two parents who to get their children to fall in love, uh, create a fake feud so they can feel like Romeo and Juliet. They're both extremely romantic and uh, to persuade them to fall. And then the, the disillusionment when they find out that it's all uh, not true. Well, Act 1 is the illusion, and Act, act 2 is the disillusion. The disillusion, right. The act 1, is, as it says, is, is in the sun, a moonlight, and Act 2 is in the sun. But uh, the premise is in, encapsulated in the song Try to Remember in the third chorus when he sings Deep in December It's nice to remember and, and he says Without a hurt the heart is hollow and that becomes the premise of it and beyond that for me having I was also very caught up at that time in uh, reading The Golden Bough and uh, some of the uh, things about uh, religion and origins of theater in connection with religion and this the transition of uh, time of a seasonal change and so that that the premise is further stated by the El Gallo directly to the audience when he says there is a curious paradox that no one can explain who understands the secret of the reaping of the grain who understands why spring is born out of winter's laboring pain or why we almost die of it before we grow again. So it's very clearly... So that that's the premise and the whatever... The concept. concept. Oh, the concept was to presentational theater, to do things that can't be done on television, but the audience will help create part of the illusion where you openly admit this is a theater, this is a platform, this is a wooden or a cardboard moon... And then by the magic of acting and music and the imagination of the audience and the actors, you actually get them to believe that it's real. And that that's the basic theater, ancient theater magic. As you talk about all of these techniques and, and the, even the theories and the concepts behind putting this show together... How much of this was a byproduct of where theater was at the time that you were doing it? The the off Broadway scene certainly it wasn't where big musicals were, but was this rising up out of of what else was going on in the creative scene off Broadway? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think it, well, yes and no. It was a it was not just off Broadway. It was there was a a swell. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a groundswell of movement around the country that we were experiencing back before I even was interested in musicals at all. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, where all the plays at that time were, you know, most of them, not all, but most were in realistic sets. 
and they were in like two or th- more often three act forms and the curtain came down and and between scenes the curtain would close and the actors all pretended like they were just all people talking to each other you know and uh having experienced some Thornton Wilder and some Brecht and a lot of Shakespeare where people not where they don't just talk to each other, but they turn out and talk to the audience. There was a, a, a growing desire to break down the proscenium, and at that same time, all these new theaters began to be built with thrust stages. You know, it was all happening all over the place. It was happening in the new regional theaters, and it was and the musicals were a natural extension of a place for this to happen. Because already they were addressing the audience, you know. There was this, and already they were using poetry in one form or another, and um, they were they were using the things that were traditionally the part of what I would say the Shakespeare festival. They they exposition and development of stories and plots and musicals is much and has traditionally always been much more like Shakespeare than like plays or Ibsen or something like that, where exposition is slowly brought in and so forth. It's it's just far more right in your face. Well, let's take this from the conceptual to the practical. You spoke earlier of the fact that you were offered this opportunity to slam it together as a one act. You threw everything out but one ultimately great song of the musical theater. Um how did it go from this this one act at Mildred Mildred Dunnock's Summer Theater to the Sullivan Street Playhouse? Well, it went laboriously uh, and uh, by by incremental inches, you know, like a inchworm. Um, we had three people who came to see it down there. We, we were at one week these one acts, and uh, <clears throat> we had a, a good cast, even though we had very little rehearsal time. And certainly, Word was a good director. And uh, three people came and saw it there and offered to produce it. And of the three, we chose Lori Noto because one of the three wanted to uh, do it as it was done there as a one act and then put some of our review material for the other half of the evening. And the other producer was unwilling to pay excuse me, an advance. And we were determined to get... Harvey and I, it didn't matter how much it was. It's just like it was a determination that we would get a $250 advance. <laughs> uh, and the other producer was not willing to do that, although he was willing to like see us expand it to a full. Lori Nota was willing and insistent upon seeing it expanded to a full evening. He was willing to raise the $250 for an advance. <laughs> and further, what really clinched it, he was willing to write it in the contract that Wordbaker and Harvey and I would have all final decisions about artistic matters unless we were hopelessly deadlocked, in which case he would make the decision. Interesting. And that was uh, irresistible. Now, what, what was Laurie Noto's uh, background at that point? Well, Laurie Noto was a strange, strange man. Without his strangeness, we would never have survived. He was just like a... He was, uh, well, I mean, you know, not to take a long time, he was from New York City. He, part of his youth was as an orphan. He's from Sicilian background, very important to the survival of the Fantastics, uh, I think. 
because he he just like had this insane determination, you know, like uh, and when he later on got cancer as the show was running and they didn't give him six or eight months. He lived another 15 years with wow. camp because, like the show, he wouldn't close, you know. It's <laughs> like his determination. Now, was he already an established producer? Oh, no. Uh, he had done one show called The Failures mm. off-Broadway, which had run one night. It's always a dangerous <laughs> title. Yeah. Really, really. And uh, somebody... so, so here you had you and Harvey Schmidt inexperienced new guys on the block, so to speak. Yes. And an inexperienced new guy on the block was a producer in a little yes. theater down in Greenwich Village, which, after the show opened, got kind of mixed reviews, kind of yes. banned by the New York Times and some other influential Well, papers. it didn't... It, it got mixed in the mixed, New York yeah. Times and mixed in the Tribune. Uh-huh. At that time, there were eight daily newspapers, if you can believe it. The rest were all good. And the, the magazines, which came out a week later, particularly Saturday Review and Q... And the weekly, the the best review, the review I cherish the most is one from the Village Voice. That was the most interesting to me and the best review. The one who, that was the one who got it the most, you know, what we were trying to do. But um, but with the, the Times and the Tribune, both, one of them liked Act One, one of them liked Act Two. They both liked the actors, but, you know, uh, Brooks Atkinson, a man I respect very much, said, you know, it just... It's it's a little too mannered to really sustain a full evening. It loses its magic the longer it runs. <laughs> so it was off to kind of kind of a shaky start. It, very, very. We played that summer, that first summer, we often played to like 10, 12, 15 people. And then you did something interesting. At the end of August, you closed the show for a week and took it out to East Hampton on Long right. Island. Right, and uh, at the John Drew Theater. Laurie did many strange and interesting things. Uh, which paid off all of them, everyone. Uh, and we were there, and it was a huge success there. <clears throat> at the, and uh, a lot of people, you know, the cognoscenti, the, the opinion makers, <clears throat> the movers and shakers were all there in the Hamptons. I'd never seen such a place in my whole life. My God, I was just overwhelmed <laughs> by how glamorous it was and how chic and everything. And at that time, it was also somewhat accessible. It wasn't totally choked with cars and people. But the people who were there were people who mattered, and they liked it, and the word began to spread. That helped us enormously. And then, Laurie, right after that, Frank Lesser came down to see the show and offered to uh, lease it with his company, Music Theater International. And even though at that time it was totally unheard of for a show to release it to amateur rights and secondary rights while the show was still running, Laurie agreed to do it. He needed the advance for one thing to keep us going. And that really, uh, instead of closing us, it really boosted us. It made us known around the country because there began to be lots of productions and and the people who did those productions, I mean hundreds and hundreds and hundreds in, into the thousands, would when they'd come to New York, sort of come to see the Mother Church version down at Sullivan mm-hmm. Street. So it gave the show a big boost, but here you are still two... New guys on the block, Laurie Noto, new guy as well, and a relatively unknown cast. Jerry Orbach was not the Jerry Orbach we've come to know over the four or five decades since then, and yeah. the other cast members certainly were not well known. How did you go about choosing your cast, and, and you know why Jerry Orbach is El Gallo, for example? Well, uh, we we had audition. We didn't have a casting director. Ha ha ha! It was mean, just we, it was just you, I guess. Right? Yeah. Well, it was us. Yeah. yeah, and it was in our apartment. We didn't have a room to cast it in. So, <laughs> in the fourth floor of a West Side walk up, 
and the actors lined up on the stairs to come up. And uh, Jerry auditioned, and he just blew us away. You know, he was just dynamite. And uh, so he started down, and we had another two weeks of auditions scheduled. And we said, listen, we're not going to see better than this. Let's go. <clears throat> so Word and Harvey and I all ran out and ran down the stairs past all the actors waking, waiting and went down to the corner. We yelled for Jerry and said, we want you to do it, you know. I figured you better sign this guy before he gets another job. Well, <laughs> it was a good thing we did that because the next day, he wa- the very next day, he was offered a job in a new Broadway musical trying, it was going to try out in Boston. Uh, it had been a success in London called Lock Up Your Daughters, directed by Alfred Drake, paying like 10 times the salary we could pay. And um, Jerry, however, was, he was interested in the script and he was interested in the fact that we committed ourselves so enthusiastically. And his part wasn't that great, I guess, in Lock Up Your Daughters. So he made the decision to come with us and, and got the, the notices and like our second week Gower Champion came down and was wildly enthusiastic about the show which he always was all his life and in fact a few years ago Barbara Cook did a, an evening uh, uh, and which was recorded called that Champion Season which is songs from shows that Gower did but uh, she concluded the thing with a song which was and truly was Gower's favorite song which is They Were You which he never did direct uh, from the Fantastics and she sang it a cappella just <clears throat> dynamite the best recording of it forever but anyway um, Jerry was cast then in Carnival we opened in May and he by September was in rehearsal for a David Merrick musical directed by Gower Champion. Well, as we talk about the cast, I think we need to ask specifically about uh, an either an elderly actor or a young actor at the time named Thomas Bruce. Uh, yes. How did how did uh, this gentleman, who we're told you are very close to, uh, manage to uh, be in this show that he had in fact written? Well. I had no intention of being it. I had acted, you know, in college and always played old men. That was my speciality. Uh, and uh, I'd written it with Ellis Rabb. You remember Ellis Rabb, wonderful character actor, and formed it. Uh, in fact, that summer he was forming the theater that he became known as that uh, called APA, Association of Producing Artists. <clears throat> and so Ellis was not available, and I was reading in the part, and everybody said, well, you know, you're you're pretty good. So um, so they said, why don't you do it? And I said, okay, but I uh, th- there was a big to-do at that time about vanity productions, people writing things so that they could be in them, and I was afraid of being accused of being a vanity production. Though it may be true, I didn't want it to be known. And uh, so... I um, I decided to do it under an assumed name, the name of Thomas Bruce. But what, what was your cover blown by any of the, the media? Did they well, say uh, it's really Tom uh, Jones? Uh, 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 several months after we ran, uh, somebody, a lady, and I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, who wrote for The Post, which was a nice paper at that time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, she wrote an article. She did an interview and said t- an article called Tom Jones Complicates His Name. 
<laughs> My name really got complicated later on when the singer took the name because of the movie, you know. That the, isn't his the, real uh, name. rock and roll singer, Tom yeah, Jones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you had first dibs on it, though. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, Henry Fielding had first dibs on it. And, uh, and uh, after the movie, they, his manager gave him that name. Uh-huh. Well, the, the show is currently in revival here in New York. It closed in uh, 2002. It has just recently reopened uh, off-Broadway. But in Midtown, not down in the village, up in 50th Street and Broadway at the Snapple Theater. Yes. And just mm-hmm. as the originals, the set is... You know, virtually identical to the original, the costumes and all that. And just as in the original, the new El Gallo, uh, Burke Moses, starts off the show singing Try to Remember. And having read your book, Making Musicals, there's an interesting anecdote you talk about when you wrote the song, how Harvey wrote the music. Mm-hmm. and then the, the song Try to Remember, <clears throat> we had another song at one point, uh, which I think we recorded on that, uh, when we did our show... Uh, what was that show called? The show goes on, where Harvey and I performed with some other people doing you know, a sort of a, um, a trunk of our songs. And that song was called Follow Along With Me, and it, it ended with Follow, Follow, you know. It, and um, then we were content with that. But then Harvey wrote the music to try to remember. In fact, he wrote it. I did. I don't know if is that. I don't know if I put that story in the book, but that's really Harvey's story. He was, he was uh, trying to write some kind of jazzy, complicated things with hot stings, and he had rented a studio in Fifty uh, Seventh Street. He didn't have a piano at that time, and he had a little tape recorder. And uh, well, actually, not little at that time. Tape recorders were big things. And he was playing and playing. It was hot. There was no air conditioning. He was streaming perspiration. He was just discouraged. And he just thought, oh, God, I just can't go on with this. He was totally blocked. So he just stopped. And he said he just <clears throat> just sat there and played Try to Remember from beginning to end, exactly as it exists, in the same key and everything. And he thought, my God, that's pretty. I wonder what that is. <laughs> he thought, that's, maybe that's Streets of Laredo. And he sort of thought, no, that's not Streets of Laredo. He said, well, maybe that's mine. And so he recorded it, and he began to play it at, uh, in the apartment that we shared with um, these other guys, uh, Bob Minton, who later became a very successful movie director and writer, and Bob Gold, who owned the Sullivan Street Playhouse. And uh, I heard him playing it, and I thought... Oh, that's such a beautiful song, melody. And I thought, that would be wonderful if I could do a lyric. So even though his... And then it took me weeks and weeks to do the lyric because uh, his his part just came like it's a gift from God, which some, happens to me sometimes, too. But mine then was a matter of like wanting to take this beautiful, simple, and somewhat repetitive melody There's as our music publisher at that time, uh, Chapel Music, with these ancient men who really discovered Gershwin and all that, said, Where? Where's the bridge? Where's the bridge? <laughs> you know, and there's no bridge. It's AAA. But I thought, well, it would be fun to take this simple long line song and then play with lots of assonance and near sounds and near rhymes and inner rhymes and, and sort of encrust it verbally on top of this flowing, um, basically folk-like, simple melody. And that's that took me weeks to do, really. It took him 20 seconds and me three weeks. 
Jerry Orbach is the original El Gallo from the original cast recording of The Fantastics on Decca Broadway. Tom Jones, our guest today, the lyricist and book writer for The Fantastics. Just to mention that uh, we we recorded the new uh, cast album uh, week Tuesday a week ago, and it should be out in another two weeks or so, I think. We'll look for it and start playing it immediately. Please. As we talk about the new production, I've read that in the latter years of the Sullivan Street production, you weren't entirely happy with what had happened to your show, which of course had become such a fixture here in New York, and you are directing the show now. And so well, for people who saw it late in its life, do you think they saw what it originally was? No, I don't think. And I wasn't I was unhappy with myself. I felt I'd let it down. <clears throat> I you know, the first ten years we were there all the time, Harvey and I. And the second ten years, quite a bit of the time. And the third ten years, less time. And as we entered the fourth ten years, we were just busy with other things. Well, surely our life. you didn't know when this started that this would become a lifetime career with no, just but, this one but, show. But we knew that it, it required personal attention to be what it was. It's a very elusive show. It seems simple, but it's very complicated. It's not easy to sing, and it's not easy to act, because you have to seem comedic and yet real. You have to be touching and comedic at the same time. If you comment too much, you lose it. If you get too self-lugubrious, you lose it. Uh, So uh, we really maintained it, uh, because Word was out doing other things. And... uh, but then, so I hadn't really seen it for quite a while, and we had had the same basic stage manager who'd acted in it, too, who was a wonderful guy, just terrific, and terrific in the show, and a terrific stage manager for a long time. But he was with the show for 37 years, and I realized when I went down towards the end, he was not able to see it anymore. He couldn't give notes. He was like, you know, his his mind, I'm sure, just like fried out, really. <laughs> so when I saw it at the end, I felt very, very guilty and there were lots of people going down to see it because it was announced closing. And I felt, oh, I've this show has been so nice to me. It's so wonderful. And I believe in it so much. And I've really, I've, it's like I betrayed a friend or even worse, like a child. And I thought, so when I was given the chance to, by these producers who are very knowledgeable, very smart guys, really. They have four hits on Broadway running right now. My, my. I like that. David Merrick used to have four hits, but he wasn't nice. <laughs> but he was, he was talented. But anyway, when I had a chance to, like, do it and, uh, and, and get a whole company and rehearse together, which we hadn't done since 1960, realize all the 42 years, we just put in people one at a time. Well, there were 41 different El Gallos over those 42 years. Uh, I'm sure. I, I counted from your website, from the Fantastic's website. Really? I counted 41 different El Gallo, starting with Jerry Orbach. Yeah, yeah it's interesting because some would stay a long, short time and some would stay a long time. And some would come back again and again. But it's a chance to get a, a, a company. And we have a wonderful company. This boy and girl, I mean, the whole company is great. I mean, I, I'm particularly impressed the boy and girl. It's their debuts in New York. And you saw them, so you you know that they really can not only sing, but they're terrific actors. The boy just played Hamlet at the Guthrie, mm. what I consider a good preparation for playing in the Fantastics. <laughs> well, you aspire Since I to stole so many, yeah. I stole many of the lines from the Fantastics, from Hamlet specifically. Well, 
that's your your long-running off-Broadway contribution. You have made several Broadway contributions, specifically 110 in the Shade and I Do, I Do. How did 110 in the Shade come to fruition? It was based on an earlier uh, stage production of uh, The Rainmaker. The Rain, uh, Richard Nash. Uh, well, uh, actually, uh, David Merrick, my old pal, nemesis, whatever, uh, had seen The Fantastics and liked it, and he actually dated one of the girls who was uh, Louisa, if you can imagine our little Louisa out with David Merrick. <laughs> oh, well, it's like Phantom of the Opera or something, you know. But uh, anyway, um, actually, that particular Louisa wasn't entirely naive, but um, which is good. But uh, he recommended that Dick Nash come down and see the show, and he liked it, Richard. And many people had wanted to make a musical out of The Rainmaker, uh, including Rogers and Hammerstein and many, many others. And uh, he hadn't found the right match for him, Richard, because he wanted to do the book, and he wanted to be very much involved in the decision-making process. And uh, he asked us if we'd ever knew anything about the Southwest or written anything about the Southwest. You were born in Texas. (laughs) Yes, we both were born in Texas, and we both had written a, a Western musical called Roadside. We'd started working on it, you know, we'd put it aside, but we played him some of those songs, which he liked. And so we made an agreement to do it, and uh, and and we did. And uh, it was, um, you know, we had a wonderful cast. It received basically good notice, but the Times, my old nemesis, the New York Times, had the strangest review. You know the show, 110 The Shade, I assume. The Times complained that it had suggestive dirty lyrics, if you can imagine that. I mean, it was, Did it? I was, no. I mean, not unless you've got a really dirty mind, which the Times reviewer had. And he was there just like one year or something. And then, because so many shows, then he would like look for these salacious things, which weren't in fact there. But we fell under his purview or something. Anyway, so it ran a year in New York, a year on the road, and it's been frequently revived. New York City Opera had a lovely production some 10 years or 12 years ago. And we have an impending production now and, here and in New York. That's what right. What can you tell us about mm-hmm. the upcoming production? It's going to be done by the Roundabout Theater, and Lonnie Price is directing it, and Audra McDonald is doing Lizzie, and that's the most exciting thing of all. I saw, saw and heard her in a... Uh, a workshop a year ago. So they're doing a workshop right now. They're doing another one. I'm working with Lonnie. I did some tweaking on it. And uh, she's, as in everything she does, fantastic. But she's really solidly wonderful in this. You know, she's really powerful. And it's scheduled for April of next year. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you just used the word tweaking, and and I wanted to ask, is there a temptation for you, whether it was now directing the Fantastics yourself after after such a long period um, of it being in an existing production or, or 110 in the Shade coming back to Broadway, though certainly it's had productions. Do you look at your works and say, I'd like to fix this here and there? Is it an opportunity or are they just minor? Oh, oh sure, yes. You know, this this Fantastics that you saw has two or three scenes that have been rewritten and uh, one song had been replaced. <clears throat> and... Uh, but, you know, as I say, we, Harvey and I put people in the show for 40 years. And over a period of time, if you had many different actors or actresses and they had same had trouble with the same area, then you figure, well, maybe it isn't just the 
oh, it's always the writer's first choice to blame the actor. You know, as they say, blame the ingenue if anything goes wrong. But when it's trouble after 25 years, you're willing to accept it might have been. Maybe there's something wrong with the writing. And then you think, well, yeah, you know, I can see this. This isn't this could be better and uh, not substantially change it. You don't want to do that because there's a real danger. If you do that, you can you can get lost in the woods, you know, and never find your way out. But uh, I'm pleased, but I'm not going to change it. This is it. This is the this is the final version. And I never say never. I guess they, there's an old adage. But I I think I can safely say this is the one I want to to be the final form, the final version. I do. I do a two person show based on the four poster. Another earlier show. Yes, right. <clears throat> starred and, starred uh, Robert Preston and Mary Martin. Yes, and then later uh, a very successful tour with Carol Burnett and Rock Hudson and uh, other successful tours. But, but you and Harvey Schmidt initially didn't want to do it. When Garrett Champion called you, I read, I think in your book, that you didn't want to do it originally. Well, we wanted to. I, I don't think that we, if I said that, maybe I slightly misspoke myself. We were not certain that we wanted to do it. Not, not, not enthusiastic, um, at least? Uh, we We didn't know... Well, it was actually not dissimilar from... We were more enthusiastic about the Rainmaker to begin with because it seemed like so have so many ideal ingredients for musical. But we, we, we asked when we worked on the Rainmaker, we said, look, let us work on it. We don't want to sign a contract. Let us work on it for a while and see if we think we can make it ours. And then if we can't, we just we'll go our separate ways, and that's what we did, and uh, we did that with I do I do because the challenge of making a two character musical for a Broadway musical, even though it was exciting, it was daunting, and we said let us see if we can break it open. Let's see if we can find the form that will keep that will make it into a musical. And uh, Gower said, fine. So we worked on it. We were both living in Italy. I was there with my wife, and Harvey had taken a wonderful villa. Oh, my. Those were the days. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we we worked there for like a month or six weeks and it broke, broke it open. Uh, we found the, the way, the form that would make it, could make it work for us. And Gower liked it. He and Marge came over to Italy, and we played him the stuff and then they flew us over we were only half written and we flew us over to play it for Mary and she turned it down she decided to do Walking Happy mm-hmm. instead and uh, so we went back to work and uh, mean, and she went in the interim she did a tour of Hello Dolly she went to Vietnam and then London for Goward she loved working with him so she was very intrigued to still investigate it. And she also, it gradually began to dawn on her that the the main part in uh, Walking Happy was actually the man's part. Mm-hmm. And I think, so by that point, we had finished writing it. And they flew us, and we flew back, and we flew to Cleveland, where she was appearing in Hello, Dolly. And uh, after a nervous day of prepping, played it for she and her husband, Richard Halliday. And she loved it, and she decided. And then they couldn't get Robert Preston because he had just done uh, Lion in Winter with Rosemary Harris, and Rosemary Harris had gotten all the reviews. And he said, well, I think they're tired of me on the street, the street being Broadway. And he said, you know, we played it for him. He said, you know, I could just 
hear the audience reaction when Mary does that flaming Agnes number. <laughs> and uh, so uh, he said no. We were started looking for other, you know, uh, people, and we couldn't find anybody who was really not as right as he was. And we played for Howard Keel, who was interested, and and I adored Howard Keel. He was such a wonderful, wonderful guy, and I would have loved to have done a show with him, but. But at some point, David Merrick, who ne- never gave up, um, went to Preston, and uh, Preston said, oh, what the hell, I'll do it. He said, I, "He said, David, I don't need to have an agent represent me, and I don't need a lawyer. I just want what Mary gets. <laughs> <laughs> so here you and Harvey were writing with them in mind, and they yes, were both, absolutely. Re- both reluctant to go into it. So how would that have affected the show if they had said, no, we don't want to do it, and you had to find somebody else? Well, I mean, it was still... You know, it's been done by lots of people since. Yeah, and, but, uh, but but you had written the material with their voices, their characteristics yes, in but, mind. Yes, but it was still generically, uh, yeah. you know, as I say, it it played it played. Excuse me, one theater in a dinner theater in Minneapolis called the Chan Hassan. Do you ever hear of the Chan Hassan Dinner Theater? Yeah, it played there for twenty two years with the same two actors. Wow, two character musical man and woman. For 22 years, wow. seven perform not eight, but seven performances a week for 22 years. They got they married each other. They had two kids. And when the kids finished college, they stopped doing it. <laughs> That's and I think we're story. committed to a mental institution or something. <laughs> Tom, I'd like to play another song that you and Harvey wrote, Harvey Schmidt writing the music, you writing the lyrics. In this case, My Cup Runneth Over. And you have an interesting uh, story I, I, I know about how you struggled to write the lyrics for this. Yes, well, this one is one we learned. <clears throat> we didn't know much about writing songs when we started off in college. We didn't study it or anything. And I read in, in the Sunday Times at some point, Alan J. Lerner talking about he they worked uh, on My Fair Lady, he and Fritz Lowe, and said they would often take a title and work from the title. And this was total news to me. and Or maybe a phrase or two phrases so when we were working on I Do, I Do, we were just compiling a lot of songs. We were searching for the form. I jotted down, My Cup Runneth Over with Love. And uh, Harvey took that phrase, among many others, and he wrote a beautiful medley, melody and with a wonderful sort of a under, little, what do you call it? Anyway, a little underneath counter melody that sets it up beautifully. And uh, the thing that was distinctive about the thing was, and he sang, it, it, the last line of the melody they wrote was, my cup runneth over with love, uh, 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 like for 12 bars or something. And what was distinctive was the beautiful melody, but also the fact of holding that note so long with this interesting, almost minuet-like counter melody going underneath it. I quickly set uh, one verse to it, uh, in it like that, and then I couldn't. I was stuck. I couldn't... There are very few rhymes for love. I had used of, which is an easy rhyme, but then you start getting into things like, you know, give me my hand and my glove, or, you know, dove, right. above, and none of them seem to work without being self-conscious, particularly when held. Um, anyway, so uh, I um, I just stuck with it for like... Two months it took me to work out in a way. Finally, I just gave up and said, all right, I'll come up with some interesting inner rhyming sounds and assonance and so forth because I'm just going to go to of as the rhyme uh, because it's the, it won't stick out like a sore thumb. And then so that in the, 
so I put things like, in only a moment we both will be old. We won't even notice the world growing. Oh, oh, oh. So that that has a poetic feeling. And, and, and so at this moment with sunlight above, I did use above, uh, but I tried to put the focus on other words and so to give it a poetic feeling. Uh, and take the emphasis off <laughs> that awkward of rhyme. And then we wrote the song, and um, we put it in the show, and and neither Mary nor Bob, even Mary at that point in her career, couldn't hold it for the 12 thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, uh, so they cut it uh, and out of town in Boston. And, and then Mary said, oh, that's such a sweet little tune. She said, why don't we just do it and not hold it? And so they put it back in, and Gower said, well, all right, but I don't want to go for applause. He said, so we'll just we'll have her. She's pregnant when they sing it. We'll just have her start having my cup running over with, oh, 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 at the end. <laughs> and, and so <clears throat> to have labor pains. Then, oh, uh, what's his name? Oh, Ed Ames put out a recording of it with the as originally written. And if you can believe it, those were the days. My God, they're gone forever. When it was the number one hit record in America, oh, glory be! And but the only thing was, it was in the original form. And when people went to the show, they wanted to hear that song. And there it went by. It it wasn't with the held note, and they didn't go for applause for it. So they didn't even notice that it went by. <laughs> Life well, is full of ironies. Well, here it is, as performed in "I Do, I Do." Robert Preston, Mary Martin. My cup runneth over. Robert Preston, Mary Martin. My cup runneth over. As you're sitting here telling us stories with mentioning David Merrick and Gower Champion and Robert Preston and Mary Martin, I'm fascinated by the fact that after 110 in the Shade and I Do, I Do, you and Harvey sort of moved in a different direction. And you even created your own theatrical studio and were experimenting, again, with a word you've used many times, form. Can you tell us about the Portfolio Studio and Celebration, which all came about that time? Well, it had always been our dream. Well, and it's partly an idealistic dream, and it's partly just plain out-and-out hubris. And the hubris part was as it's always followed by nemesis you know we were we had a hard time but we we had a dream i had a dream (laughs) and we found a a wonderful building on 47th street between 8th and 9th it had been a a chapel for immigrant weddings at the turn of the century had a wonderful two-story space uh where high enough to do stage and then it had another on the, up above, another two-story space where you could rehearse and so forth, and and the room for costumes and making sets. And we built uh, Harvey designed, and and uh, we had built Bob Gold, who came with us from the old Sullivan Street days, built a modified Shakespearean stage with an inner above and inner below. And we proceeded to write <coughs> a number of musicals for that space, trying to do original musicals. I mean, we were so insane. Uh, we They were going to be originals, which is very hard to do, and which we there was no proof that we knew how to do that. And they were, not only that, but they were going to be like in a, in a new form, like pursuing ritual forms and pursuing forms that musical theater hadn't tried before. And uh, it was, it was a, 
in a way, a noble experiment, and uh, in another way, it was stupid, but it was a great learning experience, I'll have to say. And we produced several things which were actually pretty good. A celebration which moved to Broadway for a modest run, and which didn't never belonged on Broadway in the first place. It was like a ritual musical, attempt at a ritual musical with a few naked girls and a few laughs. And uh, Well, as you say, you say that that wasn't necessarily meant for Broadway and some of these other pieces you were developing. Were you conceiving your work for a Broadway scale, or were you really thinking in more intimate forms? Because so much of your work over the years has been intimate work. Well, at that point, where we, what I tell you, the the secret is of our vainglorious dream was that we were going to like have our thing, and we were going to produce it in effect the first version of it. We were going to direct it, design it, write it. It was going to be original. It was going to be based on... uh, And we were going to be so adored by the critics and the public that we would have the kind of success that right after that chorus line had. And that I would buy a limousine and have a driver and drive around all the time and never have to wear an overcoat. And like (laughs) Michael Bennett did. I was so impressed when we later did some songs for him. You know, in the middle of winter, he just pops up and he's in his like summer outfit because <laughs> he's always got a driver and all that. Now we we envisioned that it was going to be we were going to be welcomed as the saviors of the American musical theater, and uh, you know, um, the trouble was we hadn't learned a lot of the ABCs. We'd learned a lot of we knew kind of how to do the XYZs, and so we it it was a a real slap in the face with a wet towel and it woke me up and it thought made me think yeah if i'm going to do this i have to learn more about it so i began my learning process about musical theater at that for at so, that point so how did that then impact the works that came after that well um the work continued to be experimental and and um, celebration as i say was a fairly large i mean not re- not huge but it was not it was broadway scale in a way but after that we realized that we we could not nobody was going to that we weren't broadway writers really particularly mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, so we decided to scale back and to like work to experiment within compressed forms so that one of the next piece we did was a thing called philemon <clears throat> which got wonderful notices i'll have to say the best notices we ever got in new york were for philemon but we tried a number of interesting experiments there. Uh, we had a very small cast, smaller than the Fantastics, and yet we had a lot of choral sounds. And what we did in that case was to use the principles as chorus in both senses, as backup chorus, but as chorus in the Greek sense of being able to stand outside the story uh, and narrate. There's this one central character named Kakion who becomes Philemon, <clears throat> becomes a saint unwillingly. And the others all stand around, and he's the only person trapped in time. He's caught in his in his own lifetime. The others are outside time and speak to us directly and sing to us directly <clears throat> and comment and then move into the story and become characters in the story. Uh, we Later, when we worked on the Grover's Corner, the musical version of Our Town, we also use the principles as as being able to step outside time and use them as chorus. Good. Well, 
I want to just reiterate that the Fantastics is back in New York, a little bit further uptown than it had been, and it's running on uh, 50th Street and Broadway at the new Snapple Theater. It's like a, a walk-up, a third floor, fourth floor walk-up. Although there is an elevator. There is a small there, elevator, yeah. yes, yeah. you can uh, take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a nice little theater. It's very much the same as Sullivan Street Playhouse. It's like a doppelganger of, of Sullivan Street Playhouse. Yeah. It, to me, it's like a very strange like time warp. But it's bigger. It has 46 more seats or something like that, 199 versus 153. So, Tom, may this one run for another 42 years. Fantastic. From your mouth to God's ears. And with you in it as as the old actor. I don't think I'll run another 42 years, with all (laughs) due respect to Unless I'm the the llama from Lost Horizons, you know. <laughs> well, when audiences look at their playbills and they see the name Thomas Bruce, we know that's really Tom Jones. Tom, yeah. thanks so much for being with us today My at Downstage pleasure. Center. My pleasure. Thanks, Tom. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.